We're in Matthew chapter number one, and I, I have to tell you, if I'm being perfectly honest, that until yesterday, uh, probably, I don't know, Luke, what time did I call you yesterday? Somewhere around 11 or 12 o'clock yesterday, I had actually kind of forgotten that conversation about doing Christmas in July. But I was reading and I was studying and there was this thought that kept coming back into my mind and I couldn't quite shake it. And after the second or third time of my attention being drawn to this particular passage of Scripture, in Matthew chapter number 1, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Christmas in July, we talked about this. We, we said we were going to think about doing this and, and maybe just maybe that's why God keeps bringing me back to it. And so I immediately called Luke. I said, hey, what do you think about doing Christmas in July tomorrow? He said, oh, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And so we talked about it a little bit. We debated on, on how we were going to go about it. And my biggest thing was I just didn't want my wife and kids to know. Like, I, it's been so hard. The last 24 hours have been so hard trying to keep this under wraps uh, just because I know how much my, lo- my wife loves Christmas time. Uh, it is a big deal to her family. I also love Christmas time. Just to be clear, like, I don't want to cast all the blame on her, okay? I. I genuinely love Christmas time myself, but uh, I wanted to try to, to make it a surprise to them as much as anything. And so we're looking forward to this today. I, I don't, I'm not saying this will be an annual thing. And by the way, if, you're, if you walked in late and you were wondering why we were singing, Oh, come all you faithful, okay, that's why we're doing Christmas in July today. I saw some folks come in and their eyes were about this big thinking, what is this Baptist church doing in here? Okay, uh, that's what it boils down to, so... Anyway, we're glad to have you. If you're here visiting with us for the first time, it's an absolute joy to have you here with us. It's an honor. Uh, if we can be a help to you in any way, shape, or form, you let us know, and we'll be glad to help you any way that we can. Okay? Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number 1. And we'll read verses 18 through 21 in just a moment. But before we do, I've been thinking about the power of a name and the implications of a name. As I've been thinking about it over the last little bit, you know, every sport and every profession down through the age has had a name that serves to define it. Now, this could be a little bit confrontational because some of you may have differing opinions on what names define which sports, for example, or what names define which industries, for example. But I'm going to just share my thoughts with you this morning in a way that I hope will kind of tie into what I'm trying to get at today. If you're talking about basketball, generally speaking, there's one name that sticks out above pretty much all else. When you think of basketball in general, you're generally going to think about a guy by the name of Michael Jordan. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, come on, it's this guy or that guy. But I'm just saying, generally, when you think of basketball, you're going to think of Michael Jordan. When you think of track and field, or at least I know for me, when I think of track and field, I think of a guy named Usain Bolt. When I think about the swimming world, I think of a guy named Michael Phelps and how many gold medals that guy's won. Boxing, there's Muhammad Ali. Then when you move into the industry world, in the auto industry, you can't help but think of a guy named Henry Ford, could you? In the electrical industry, there's a guy named Thomas Edison. He got a lot done in that department, didn't he? In the farming industry, there's John Deere. I really, if there was going to be a moment where I heard a, ugh. I thought that was it. I really did. I mean, when I pinned that down, I thought, oh, man, I'm going to hurt some people's feelings today. Okay? When you, when you think of the retail industry, you think of a guy named Sam Walton. 
All of these names define their industries or the sports that they played in. And in a much bigger way, certain names that will be left unmentioned today, certain names have served through the years as both catalysts for good as well as evil. But today I'd like to just simply entertain this thought. That there is only one name. Only one name that has ever changed everything about everything in every age. Look with me at Matthew chapter number 1, beginning at verse number 18. The Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall, con- shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Would you help us now as we enter into your word? I pray for those that are here today that maybe have never trusted you as their Savior. I pray that there would be such a clear and concise uh, laying out of the case of who you are and what you accomplished in your days that there would be no denying the reality of, of what you've done in terms of your gospel. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that your sweet Holy Spirit would be present in this room that there would be a sweet sense of your presence from start to finish. And Lord, that you would empower the preaching of your word as only you can. Lord, we take all of these things and ask for you to take care of all of them for your honor and your glory. We pray in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. I did want to mention today, before I get into the the sermon too deeply today, we uh, had an absolute treat on Wednesday night. I tell you, we... Uh, enjoyed something. I can share it with you today because their family is off on family reunion uh, today, but we had Jake Gaddis fill in on Wednesday night. It was something that we had planned for some time, uh, and our family was here. It wasn't that we were gone. It just uh, he and I have been praying about possibly working together to begin a prison ministry uh, at the Putnamville Penitentiary. I'd ask you to pray about that, that God's will be done there. But before he jumped in there, he wanted to get his feet wet preaching here a little bit. And so we arranged for him to preach on Wednesday night, and we were just so blessed, were we not? Those of you that were here, it was such a special night, and we enjoyed it so much. He did such a a great job, and I appreciated. uh, I know he put a lot of study uh, into what he shared on Wednesday night, and it really was just a a joy to, to see that. But today, as I preach this sermon, the title, if we were to give this sermon a title, it would be the name that still changes everything. 
the name that still changes everything. And what I'd like to do is take this passage of Scripture and uncover some truths about Jesus that at the time that is being considered here in Matthew chapter number 1, very few people were aware of in regards to Jesus Christ. There are some indications based on what the angel says to Joseph, based upon his name, based upon different prophetic uh, things that were said about him that were brought up here. There was a lot to unpack in just these few verses that you and I have just read together about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus had not lived his life yet. He wasn't even born yet. In fact, at this very moment in time, he has just been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so up to this point, nobody knew anything really about who Jesus would be, what he would accomplish. Uh, the only person I'm aware of that even knew that Jesus had, been, had stepped onto the scene was Joseph and Mary. That was it. That was the only two people that were aware that this was even taking place. And so as we break this apart, we need to keep that in mind. Jesus had not, he had not taught anything yet. He had not died on a cross. He had not risen from the dead. All we have at this point is the information that has just been given by the angel to Joseph, breaking out to us the introduction of the Son of God. And what I'd like to do is unwrap this in such a way that I hope will drive home to your heart the reality of who Jesus is today. I want to start by looking at the powerful name of Jesus. The powerful name of Jesus. Look with me at verse number 20. And I want to point out something that we believe here at Trinity Baptist Church. I will go to my grave believing this. This is something that has been contended down through the ages. And there is no contention needed. God has revealed to us something about the, the person of Jesus. I'm talking about His actual birth, His conception, that you and I need to stake down 100% for sure in our doctrinal beliefs. Look with me at verse number 20. It says, but while, he but while he, Joseph, thought on these things, what things? The idea that Mary has a child on the way, she's expecting this isn't going to look good in the community. And in his mind, he's thinking, well, it's probably time for me to just walk away from the relationship. That's the idea. He's going to put her away privily. In other words, he's going to, to, to give her a letter of divorcement, if you will, and he's going to walk away. Okay. But as he's thinking on these things, the Bible says that an angel shows up. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. I want to be abundantly clear about something. Why is it that Jesus in his time on earth was so pure and so powerful? Well, the reason is, is because of who his father was. I need you to understand something this morning. There, there was no inconsistencies. There, were, there was not something going on here behind the curtain that someone could look at and say, oh, that was sin, that was wrong, that was adultery. This was not an adulterous affair that took place that led to the birth of Jesus as some people on the History Channel might want to try to tell you. The Bible forever records that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost. That means that God Himself was going to be the father of this extraordinary child. So whenever we are considering the power of the name of Jesus, I want us to understand something. He was the physical embodiment of the power of God. He was 
God in the flesh. You wonder why we sing about him so much, why we worship him, why we bow down to him, surrender our lives to him, follow him wherever he may lead, talk about him, whatever chance we might get, sing about him in our songs. I'll tell you why, because we believe that Jesus was far more than just a man, infinitely more than just a man. We believe that he was God here on earth. Literally, whenever the prophets prophesied about this coming great one that would be the deliverer of Israel and for that matter, the savior of the whole world. There was one name that stuck out more than any other. It's the name Emmanuel. We'll get into this a little bit more later. It means God with us. So when we're talking about the powerful name of Jesus, the reason his name is so powerful, the reason that he was so powerful is because of who he was and who his father was. You know, we see this power all throughout His earthly ministry from start to finish. From His ability to overcome sin. What, what power He had over sin in His own life. You know, even His closest relatives attested to the fact that never one time did they ever see Jesus commit a single sin. From His birth all the way to His death, He was absolutely sinless. What extraordinary power that takes. You know how powerful sin is in your life. I know how powerful sin is in my life. You know, I could, I could have everything going in my favor. I, I could have studied in a Bible college for years. I could have all kinds of Scripture memorized. I could even be called to pastor a church. And you know, there are still days that sin overcomes me. There is power in sin. But when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone who never one time was overcome by sin. Why? Because of His great power. You move beyond His sinless life and you get into His earthly ministry and we see extraordinary things taking place in His earthly ministry. What great power there was in the Lord Jesus. You know what excites me today is that the power of the name of Jesus is as great today as it's ever been. You say, preacher, that can't be. I want to give you personal testimony to the things that I have seen personally that have happened at the name of Jesus. I have seen demons debilitated at the name of Jesus. You say, preacher, now you're getting out on a limb here. No, you just had to be in the room with me to see it. I've seen demons debilitated. I've seen criminals converted. I've seen rebels redeemed. I've seen drug addicts delivered. I've seen atheists apprehended. I've seen sodomites saved. I have seen extraordinary things happen in the name of Jesus still today. Say, how can that be possible? Because there is only one name that powerful. And that is the name of Jesus. Not only is His name powerful... But the second thing we see in this passage is that His name is precious. We see the precious name of Jesus laid out for us here. Look with me at verse number 21. Verse number 21. The Bible says, And, and, and she shall bring forth a son. This is still the angel speaking to Joseph. It says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, what a precious name the name of Jesus is. On Wednesday night, as Jake was preaching, this was one of the things that he highlighted. He compared God's manifestation, His manifested presence on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament 
to Jesus' manifested presence in the New Testament and how they compared. In one, He was presented as holy and almighty and, and wonderful and great and fearful and dreadful. In the other, He was seen as something humble, approachable, meek, quiet. Extraordinary, the contrast, yet the same person. And what we find in this, this particular verse is, first and foremost, the sweetness of His subjection. The sweetness of His subjection. I want you to notice in verse 21, there's a phrase here that we often read right over the top of and we don't even think about the effects of this phrase. It says in verse 21, And she shall, here's the phrase, bring forth a son. She shall bring forth a son. The idea here is that she is going to give birth to an infant baby boy. Now I want you to think about the subjection that God chose to place Himself in when He selected what means or what method that He would enter the world on behalf of mankind. He did not come as a king. The, the sky didn't split wide open and He didn't come riding in on a noble white steed. Jesus didn't, didn't clap some lightning and thunder and, and then step out. No, the earth didn't open up and He didn't climb up some golden staircase. No, 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 no. What's so sweet about our Savior is that He was God, now listen to this, in baby form. Say, preacher, what does that mean about the God that we serve? He willfully chose to be fed by a poor woman. Mary and Joseph, they didn't have very much money. We know they didn't have very much money whenever we look into the sacrifice that they gave after Jesus' birth. They were, they were able to offer one of the, the, the least expensive offerings that was required in the Old Testament when a child was born. They brought this offering forth and it was, it was something that wasn't extraordinary. It wasn't extravagant. We understand that the carpenter in, in Mary's life that, that was taking care of her, he was only bringing in what he could. And whenever God chose to take on the form of a babe, He was choosing willfully to be fed by a poor woman. He was, chosen to, he was choosing to be safeguarded by a lowly carpenter. He was choosing to be changed and soothed and carried and doctored by humans. Now, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that strikes a chord in your heart, but it sure does in mine. When I think about the humility and the subjection of placing himself in such a seemingly helpless scenario, it teaches me something about the humility of my Savior. And oh, it's so sweet to me to think about. Not only do we see Him as God in baby form, but then as He grows, He's obviously God in human form. God in the flesh. 100% God and 100% man. What an extraordinary example of humility for the God of the entire universe to take on the form of His own finite creation. When God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ, He was choosing willfully to be hungry, to suffer hurt, to need help, to be handled by men. Can you imagine 
is the God of all the universe. Infinite, eternal, existent in eternity, past, present, and future. Aware of all the things that came with being a part of mankind. To step down out of His throne and take on human form. But then the Bible teaches in the book of Philippians that He also took on servant form. This was God as a servant. He started off to build furniture. Can you imagine? We're talking about the same God who by the words of His mouth formed everything that we see and know in the world. Can you imagine how humble it must have been for Him? The very, the very tree that He was responsible for creating to chop it down, mill it down into planks and to create a piece of furniture out of it for a human to sit on. We just kind of overlook that, don't we? I just think it's amazing. We, in each of our careers, we try to build up and build up and build up in our careers, don't we? And we all start down here in our careers. I started out in carpentry as a gopher. That's what I did. I, I, you know, some of you say, what's a gopher? It's where you go for stuff. Okay, that's, when they say gopher, that's what they mean. I don't know if you knew that or not. It doesn't mean I was gnawing on the lumber. Okay, just be clear. Okay, when they call you a gopher, that literally means that, that the extent of your expertise means that you have the ability to run to the truck, find the tool, and run it back. And boy, how embarrassing it was at 14 years old to run to the truck and try to find a tool and you don't actually know what the tool is. <laughs> that was embarrassing. And as we work our way up in our careers, we will eventually reach a place where that job, now listen to me, this is, I'm just quoting what I've heard, it's a job that's just below me. It's below me. And what we're saying is, I have climbed up the ladder high enough that I no longer have to do that job because somebody else is going to step in and do that job for me. Now, if there was ever someone who could say that that job was below them, I want you to understand that that's Jesus. If anybody could ever say that that job was below them, it was Jesus that could have said it. He could say, you know what, I... I I appreciate, Joseph, what you're doing. I think it's great, your profession. You're making beautiful furniture, Joseph. I think it's great. But I believe that I believe Jesus was a gopher. I believe that Jesus built furniture. I believe there were times that he just, he just kept silent and let Joseph teach him. He already knew. He already knew. But he just went ahead and let Joseph teach him anyway. What sweet humility there is in that. Chose to build furniture. He chose to cook meals. He chose to wash feet. He chose to meet the needs of others. I see a great deal of sweetness in His subjection, but I also, I also in this passage of Scripture see the sweetness of His salvation. I want you to understand whenever in verse 21 it says that He shall be called, or His name shall be called Jesus, or He shall save His people from their sins. This is a, an incredibly significant name. The sweetness of His salvation is seen in that phrase that He shall save His people from their sins. But what we find is that the meaning of His name reveals the source of the salvation. The name Jesus, does anybody know what that, what that name means? I know many of you probably do. If you break that name apart, it literally means Jehovah is salvation. 
Jehovah is salvation. Say, preacher, why is that so important for us to get to get a hold of today? Because there are a lot of people in religious circles who think they are their salvation. That somehow they can do enough things to earn their own salvation. Can I ask you a question? Why? Why would the angel of the Lord come to Joseph and give this child the name Jesus if you can earn your salvation? I mean, set aside the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Set aside the fact that he was gloriously resurrected from the dead. I'm talking about just his name this morning. In just his very name, the Bible indicates to you and I that we cannot earn it on our own. That Jehovah must do it for us. That God must do it for us. He must earn our salvation. In fact, He is our salvation. I already quoted this verse once already, but I'll quote it again to you. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verses 8 and 9, we find out that it's for by grace that we are saved, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear at the very first introduction of the Savior of the world who the source of salvation is going to be. It's not going to be me and it's not going to be you. It's going to be Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. We also see the miracles of His name. They reveal the soundness of salvation. You know, there may have been a lot of people that Mary was familiar with. Now we know that she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. But I'm going to guess that she had some close friends along the way. Later on in her life, as Jesus is growing, as He's, as he's maturing physically and uh, turning from a, a babe to a boy and from a boy into a man, I'm going to guess that every once in a while she'd sit down with somebody like Elizabeth and have a conversation about who she believes Jesus is going to be based on everything she had seen, based on everything that she had heard, based upon the wise men that when Jesus was around two years old brought these gifts to her. I mean, everything pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to be unlike anybody else that ever walked the face of the earth. And I'm going to guess that along the way there were probably some ladies that just kind of rolled their eyes. Because every mama is proud of her child. I'm just being honest with you. I'm going to guess that every once in a while when the conversation came up, there were probably, after Mary walked away, some other conversations that happened. You know what I'm saying? You had four or five ladies that were standing in a circle and Mary. I don't believe she was proud about it. She had nothing to do with it. I mean, you think about it, she had nothing to do with it. God laid His favor on her and she was just chosen to be that virgin through which Jesus would be conceived. There was nothing she had done to earn that position. There was nothing about her in particular that somebody could point to and say, wow, look at her. And so I don't believe there was anything in Mary that, that garnered pr- praise or, or glory, but, but she knew what she saw. She wasn't going to lie about it. If somebody asked her, I'm sure she, she would tell them. I mean, the shepherds, they surely had families. They went home after they had seen what they had seen and they met Mary, they met Joseph, they knew who it was. I'm sure they went home and told their wives what they had seen. Their children probably heard as they grew up what they had seen. And so there there were people in the community who were aware of what was going on here. And there was no doubt in my mind that as 
as, as these ladies sometimes would gather, that probably, just probably, they say, hey, Mary, is it true? What are we, we've heard some things about Jesus. And, and we'd like to, and, and Mary would say, yeah, it's true. In fact, it was extraordinary, if I'm honest with you. It was embarrassing to start because there were a lot of people who just thought ill of me because I was expecting a child and I was only betrothed to this man. We weren't married yet. And so it brought great shame in the beginning years. But as I've grown now, I've begun to understand what God was doing. And so then these ladies have been asked some questions of Mary. You know, is it true that, that, you, that this happened and, and this happened? And then there were, there were wise men who brought you a, a, a gifts. I mean, that had to have been nice to have some, some nice gifts after, you know, your husband and his job. And you know how ladies can be. I'm not, I'm not being mean. I'm just, I'm just stating a fact. And, and then at the end of the conversation, after Mary has described who she believes Jesus is, all of a sudden, Mary walks away, and I can almost hear those ladies kind of start to go back and forth about how frustrated they were about what they just heard because it wasn't their child. You know, as Jesus began to grow, and there were no doubt many doubters, Many who questioned His ability. Many who questioned the reality of who He was. By the way, fellas, we're the same way, only we're a lot worse. We are, if we're honest about it. Everybody's that way. We all have skeptical natures, don't we? It's built into the very fabric of our being. There's a reason why it takes time for us to surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that skepticism that I'm addressing here in this point that every one of us in different times have had that same skeptical nature. But I can only imagine when those same ladies showed up to the wedding at Cana and Jesus turned that water into wine. I can only imagine those same families as they were gathered around and they saw the blind receiving their sight. They saw the lame begin to walk. They saw the deaf begin to hear. They saw the mute begin to speak. They saw the sick be healed. All of a sudden, all these things they'd been rolling their eyes at for so long, they begin to realize there's really something different about this man named Jesus. His miracles revealed the soundness of His salvation, the reality of who He was and what He came to accomplish. It all, all those great miracles that Jesus did, yes, it was to show forth the love of God on mankind, but I believe there was a far greater purpose in those miracles. I believe it was all to show the reality of Jesus as Savior and that He was worthy of trust. Finally, we see that the message of His name reveals the simple plan of salvation. Jesus, Jehovah, is salvation. It says at the end of verse 21, For He shall save His people from their sins. Very rarely, very rarely is a name attached to a person's destiny. Now, I don't say that in terms of it isn't attached. You look in the Old Testament and over and over again, there are names that ultimately would reflect who that person would be in their future. It's extraordinary. It's a really neat study. You ought to take the time to do it sometime. Just study what a person's name meant and then watch what they accomplished. And almost every time they went hand in hand. What I mean is it's almost never verbalized. 
The name is just given, and then we're given a description of what they accomplish in their life. I don't know if it's ever been stated so clearly in all of the Bible when a name is given and it is immediately attached in God's own word to what that person's destiny would be. But it is here. Immediately when we are introduced for the very first time to this child who had been conceived in the womb of Mary, we are told what his destiny will be. His name will be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I love the fact that it's not sugar-coated. There's nothing about that statement or that phrase that, that causes us to think that, that He's here to do something else. He, in other words, He wasn't just here to teach some really neat lessons that we needed to learn. He wasn't just here to, to show us how to live our lives. You know, one of the great doctrinal heresies being taught in, in megachurches and charismatic churches across this nation and across the world right now, it is a, it is a, a, a terrible heresy, is that Jesus set... His deity aside, lived as 100% man and not as God in order to show us how to live our lives. Can I tell you that the gospel is null and void when you adopt that heresy? God had to be wrapped in human flesh and as both God and man, He had to give His life on the cross of Calvary as a sacrifice for sin. That is the gospel. You cannot have the gospel without that truth. And so today, as we look into God's simple plan of salvation, in just looking at the name of Jesus and the description of His destiny, what we find out, first of all, is that He's the one that does the saving. It says that He shall save His people from their sins. They can't save themselves is the idea. Again, it's, it's driven home from the very first introduction. And somehow, we, to this day, there are, there are denominations and churches all over this land who somehow have gotten it wrong. That they are the ones who can earn it on their own. But it says that He shall save their, His people from their sins. So we understand that He does the saving. We also see that salvation is a promise. Salvation is a promise from God to those who would believe. It says He shall save His people. The idea is Jesus can do it. He's going to do it. There is nothing that can stop Him. Satan tried, didn't he? Remember after Jesus was baptized and then He was raised up out of the water and the Spirit descended like a dove and lit upon Him and you heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know where Jesus went immediately after that? Immediately, the moment that the baptismal service was over, Jesus went out in the wilderness to be tempted. And as Jesus was out in that wilderness, you can remember Satan attempted to stop what God was planning to do. You remember Herod. If we read on in Matthew chapter number 1, Matthew chapter number 2, we find out that Herod tried to stop it. The moment he found out from the wise men that a king had been born, what did he do? There was a massive slaughter of every child two years and under. He was trying to annihilate this one who would become the Savior of the world. We see over and over and over and over again countless attempts to annihilate the Son of God and to, to prevent His saving work from being accomplished. And in one of the greatest efforts of all, the scribes and Pharisees, interestingly enough, on the day before Passover, they decide they're going to go into, a, into an all-out effort to stop what Jesus was doing. And so they hire a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss in the garden. This massive group of people decide they're going to take Jesus captive, bring Him in for a trial that wasn't much of a trial at all. They begin to falsely accuse the Savior of this and that. Jesus doesn't speak a word and this is all in fulfillment perfectly of biblical prophecy. It's amazing. There were over a hundred and uh, I believe it was over 150 prophecies fulfilled in just the last hours of Jesus' life. It's extraordinary the study of it. But I say all of this to say that at the end of all of it, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain and hung on a cross on Passover just at the right time in just the right place, just as God had designed it. So even in the midst of the greatest attempt ever to annihilate Jesus in terms of accomplishing His saving work on the cross of Calvary, they actually helped Him accomplish it. What an extraordinary thought that is. Jesus was able. People are who He wants. Notice it says that He'll save His people from their sins. You know who He's after? You know what Jesus is really after? You. He's after you. His desire is to save you. His work was accomplished in part to bring you salvation. What an extraordinary thought that is. Sin is ultimately the problem. Notice it says there in verse 21, For he shall save his people from poverty. Is that what it says? If you turn on channel 40, that's what you'll hear it says. But that is not what my Bible says. If you watch Joel Osteen, you'll hear something like this. He, he came to save people from a bad time. From difficulty. No, no, no. That's not what the Bible teaches. Say, preacher, what is the real problem? Sin is the problem. We are sinful people. We have broken God's perfect moral law. You and I on countless occasions have abandoned what God has told us to do and done wickedly in its place. And there's one thing we know about the God that we serve. He is holy, holy, holy. And He will not allow sin into heaven. It's just not going to happen. It cannot happen. And so if you and I show up with sin in our lives, there's there's one thing we know we're not going in. Which means that before we ever pass from this life to the next, sin must be dealt with. And may I tell you, that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to save people from their sins. I stand here before you today as a preacher of Trinity Baptist Church, not as a sinless man, but as a forgiven man. God through Christ has forgiven me of all my trespasses. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I praise God today for the work that He accomplished. Not to just bring me what I need in terms of sufficiency. Not to just provide in terms of food for my family. Not to just give me a good job or whatever it is on channel 40 they're telling you these days. Can I tell you the reason Jesus came was to save me from my sins. And boy did I desperately need somebody to. Let us always remember, the great problem is sin. And we are responsible for that problem. But just as you and I are responsible for the problem of sin, so praise and glory be to God that He is responsible for the solution. And that is Jesus. The final thing we'll look at today, with what few minutes we have left, is the prophetic name of Jesus. 
We've seen the powerful name of Jesus. We've looked at the precious name of Jesus. And now to the close, I want to look at the prophetic name of Jesus. Notice in verses 22 and 23, the Bible says there, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14. If you want to write that reference down, I would encourage you to go and read it. It almost reads verbatim to what we have read here that it says. And there's some neat things that we know about Jesus based upon this verse. Again, Jesus hasn't even been born yet. Bethlehem hasn't happened. All right? Jesus hasn't taught a single lesson yet. He's just been conceived. But there's something we know about Jesus based on this verse that we can derive from the reality of who He is. And what we find is that first and foremost, He was born without a sin nature. You know why we sin? Because we're sinners. I shared at the uh, funeral on Friday... That all you have to do, and I've shared it with you before, all you have to do is walk into the nursery and you'll find out that we were born sinners. And as bad as I want to admit it to you, and as much as I love my daughter, she, she is, I mean, when she wakes up and that hair is doing this, and her eye, she got these little bags under her eyes, she's blinking like this. And then she, through her, what she calls her pappy, which is her pacifier, she gives me that grin. She can't, she can't even open her eyes yet, but she can tell Daddy's standing there, or Mommy's standing there, she's grinning. It just melts me. And so what I'm about to say is hard. It's hard for me to admit. But I know it to be true. My daughter is a sinner. Boy, is she a sinner. She knows how to steal things that don't belong to her. She knows how to scream when she is mad. And boy, when she gets mad, she gets mad right now. It doesn't take her half a day to get mad. It takes her about half a second to get mad. I mean, all the boys have to do is sit on that Minnie Mouse beanbag. And I'm here to tell you something right now. She's mad. Okay? Nobody had to... It's not like I'm in, in, in the other room whenever Emily's not paying attention to say, Okay, now when your brothers take something that belonged to them, you go steal it. I don't have to teach her that. Okay? It's not like Emily's around the corner saying now, when somebody takes something that's yours, you scream really loud and hit them. Okay? We're not doing that. We're, we're, you know, we try to be good parents to her. Okay? Not a single person has ever had to teach. Now, now, I will say there is a good chance that her brothers are teaching her some of these things. I don't know. I don't know what goes on behind closed doors. But I'm telling you, she doesn't have to be taught to sin. Why? Because she was born a sinner. Why? Because my sinful nature was passed on to her. And it breaks my heart to know that my children are going to have to endure certain struggles and certain trials and certain temptations. Because my, their daddy's sin nature has been passed into them. But can I tell you something about Jesus that is a glorious truth today? There is not a sin nature in Him. Why? Because of who His Father was. The reason that the conception of a virgin is so important for us to hold near and dear in our doctrinal beliefs is because it is that upon which hangs the sinless, perfect nature of Jesus Christ. We have to hold it for dear life. Because Satan and his forces of darkness would like to steal that truth away. 
He was born of a virgin, which teaches us that he was born without a sin nature because his father was God himself. Not only was he born without a sin nature, but he became a man to take the place of sinful man. Notice it says that in verse number 23, uh, it says that she'll bring forth a son. She'll bring forth a son. He took on the form of man. Why? Because men needed salvation. Man needed salvation. We have a, a soul in us. And, and you and I are lost and undone apart from Jesus Christ. And there's sin that plagues our lives. And the truth is, is that the only way for our lives to have a substitute is for God to become like us. And then offer Himself in our place. Finally, we see that Jesus alone... Jesus alone was born without a sin nature. Jesus alone became a man to take the place of sinful man. And Jesus alone lived to God's holy standard without sin. How do we know that Jesus is going to live without sin based on this passage of Scripture? It's because of that name, Emmanuel. In verse number 23 it says, that uh, shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You say, preacher, how do you know that he's going to live without sin? Because I know that God is holy, holy, holy. That God does not, there's not one time that God has ever sinned. And Jesus was God with us, which tells me that he's going to live his entire life to God's perfect holy standard because he is God in the flesh. Which means to me, based on all Old Testament prophecy, based upon these glorious books we call the Gospels, based upon the important truths that we find in all the books beyond the Gospels, from cover to cover, it all points to one person who has one beautiful, powerful, precious, and prophetic name, Jesus. And the question that I have for you this morning is, when are you going to finally open your eyes and realize that Jesus is who you've been needing all along? All of our lives, we, we grasp for someone to fulfill us. We, we grasp for something to fulfill us. We try so hard to, to get a hold of something that will complete us. And can I tell you, I love my wife. I love my wife to my dying breath. There will be only one thing that causes us to part ways, and that's death itself. I will hold on to her and cherish her my entire life, and I believe she'll hold on to me and cherish me her entire life. I believe with every fiber of my being. But can I tell you something? She does not complete me like Jesus does. As much as I love her and as much as she loves me, I think she'd say the same thing to you today, that I don't complete her like Jesus does. I love my children. I love them dearly. Oh, I love my children. I'd give my life for my children. I will give my life for my children. I'll spend all my waking days attempting to invest in their lives and make them into the men and women they're supposed to be. But can I tell you something? They don't complete me like Jesus does. I love this church. Oh, I love this church. And if given the great privilege, I would give my life for this church. But as much as I love you, you don't complete me like Jesus does. Say, preacher, what's your point? I'm telling you that if you do not have Jesus in your life, you are yet undone. And you haven't even begun to live until you've welcomed Him in. The name of Jesus is still transforming lives today, truth be told. You can read this as a reference, Acts chapter number 4. We won't take the time to turn there. But what you'll find is that just as Jesus accomplished great things in the Old Covenant, Jesus accomplished even greater things in the New Covenant. 
in the very act of His own work on the cross of Calvary, sacrificing Himself on that cross as the Lamb of God in the place of sinful men. And now to this day, when He is preached, it is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The name of Jesus was spoken just at the beginning of creation. I believe according to Ephesians chapter number 1, that Jesus was the one who actually did the creative work, if you will. And so Jesus, as the Word of God, was the one doing the creating. So the name of Jesus must certainly have been spoken right at the beginning of creation. The name of Jesus was spoken right at the center of all history. Everything before Jesus, we call it B.C. Or at least that's what I still call it. History channels changed it a little bit, but I like B.C. I'm going to stick with B.C. All right. Everything after Jesus, what do we call it? A.D. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini, in the years of our Lord. Literally, all of history hinges on one person, and that person is Jesus. But just as Jesus' name was spoken at the beginning of creation, and just as Jesus' name was uttered at the very center of history, so Jesus' name, at the end of all time, will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess. Turn with me to Philippians chapter number 2. We'll close with this passage. I'm just going to read this with no commentary. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and have you stand to your feet as we're turning to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number 2. I just want to read this passage to you to highlight the power of the name of Jesus. It is still the name that changes everything. And can I tell you, that name will change you today. If you'll place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, what He's done on your behalf today, you will be forever changed. Look what the Bible says, Philippians chapter number 2 and verse number 5. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now listen. Wherefore? God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.